Bad Religion, 21st Century on Island 1069, WIIS Key West. Before that, Better Than Ezra did good. Remember that song? Super awesome to hear it this morning. Good morning. I'm Gwen Filosa in with you for It's Too Early. That's the name of the show. Broadcasting down here in the studio right off Duval Street. Steps from Duval Street. I guess everything is steps, but anyway, we're really close, okay? I'm super excited to have my guest. I'm going to bring her up now. She is the creator of the hashtag Disabled and Cute. Her latest collection of essays is called The Pretty One, and she's a journalist, author, and screenwriter. We have a lot to talk about. Kia Brown, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Is it too early for you, Kia? Yes, it is. Yes. It's it's very early. It's, it, I, I'm sorry. Now I feel bad, but you know, what, 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 what can <laughs> we do fine. now? We have to, we have to power through. Oh, I'm just kidding. Exactly. <laughs> let's, um, let's go back to, you've done so much writing recently. I mean, you, you're everywhere in every publication, um, <laughs> but this, it kind of, it, did it kind of start with the hashtag disabled and cute? No, actually it started before the hashtag. Mm-hmm. So I've been writing professionally, I'd say since 2015. Um, I graduated from college in 2013 with a degree in journalism. Okay. So, I mean, I've pretty much been writing my entire life just professionally. It happened around 2015 okay. and I've been going ever since. You're so <laughs> young that I just, dis- <laughs> that's, that's impressive. You're, you're, you're beyond where I was. No, I'm teasing. Uh, but you're, you're doing great. <laughs> you're killing it. You're getting so much, um, positive attention, but let's start out with, uh, the hashtag disabled and cute. How did that come about? Um, what inspired that? Yeah. I mean, well, I grew up, um, very uncomfortable in my body, very unsure of my place in the world, like all young people, but I just was really, um, focusing too much on how my body may be different, you know, being disabled in a world that's not designed for me was a really hard pill for me to swallow as a young kid. So essentially what disabled and cute is, is like a culmination of me learning to love myself and my body. And I created it really to celebrate the fact that I was finally starting to feel okay. And I was finally starting to see my own worth. And I wanted to make sure that I could like commemorate that. So I created Disabled and Cute initially to make sure that I remember that this was the moment when I finally felt good about myself, when I finally felt like I mattered just as much as the regular standard human being. And it just took off. I mean, you're you're on Twitter. You you have like thirty thousand followers. Did you know that? You have a lot of yeah. followers. That's that's amazing to me. And uh, but but what was was the response immediate, or did it take a couple of days to blow up? I mean, it was really immediate, which which shocked me. I think it took about a week to blow up. Um, I personally thought that it was just going to be like have five of my friends. Yeah. Being like, oh, this is so cool. Like, <laughs> thank you. This is wonderful. Like, congrats, Kia. But it really blew up by the end of the week. And I was honestly shocked that so many people took to it. But I mean, truly a dream come true in terms of just, you know, paling around on Twitter and then having something actually happen positively. And it's just, it, it, I think when um, identification is so important in, in various communities, different communities, and um, it, you must have just, you know, you're just helping so many people who feel alone or feel different. I hope so. I mean, I, I think that if there's one thing I know, it's that feeling and how exhausting it is. And I think 
what I find to be true is that our fears bank on us being isolated. They bank on the idea that no one else feels this way. And so you go throughout these feelings and these moments in your life where you're thinking, this is just happening to me, so that it's easier to maintain that idea that, no, I'm I'm not good enough. When reality is, what I learned is that, like, everybody was feeling this way in some way. And it allowed me to do that work of stepping outside of these feelings of just, like, worthlessness and um, frustration and depression. And I think what I hope is that people can see the work that I do and, you know, read my books and read my work and think, if she can do it, if she can get out of it, so can I. Now, um, born with cerebral palsy, what are the struggles you went through or what, what, how, what was it like growing up and being now? I mean, I had, a, I had a fairly happy childhood. My mom was very adamant about the fact that if my sister got a bike or a scooter or rollerblades, I also got them. Nice. <laughs> she was very much like, I'm not going to deny you something. We just have to find workarounds. But I think physically, it does have its limits. Like, I can't, you know, um, walk long distances. It's It takes me a little longer to get dressed in the morning. Um, I do experience fatigue and, like, aching bones and, like, aching limbs. I'm back in physical therapy, which is nice just to stretch myself. Like, it's really a lot of... Um, just making sure that I rest and listen to my body and try my best to remember that I'm going at the pace that I can go. And it's not necessarily going to be as fast as the person next to me, but I'll get there eventually. <laughs> and and um, years ago, a friend of mine, her, her father was disabled and she told me, you, you do not understand the discrimination the, the, in the public and the, the certain things aren't, aren't designed for him to walk about or to get into buildings. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we do live in a world that, it, that is designed to not think about disabled people. So oftentimes, even in large spaces, there aren't that many places to sit or sometimes you go to a place and the elevator is broken or um, there's no steering rail and it's just people thinking that the passing of the ADA was the thing that fixed everything. But I find that it was just a start and a lot of times when I enter buildings or I go to do events, a lot of them aren't accessible and it's just me tiring my body out either get to the floor that the event is on or something else is wrong and I have to figure out how to adapt and work around it and I think that a lot of people don't get taught about disability you know we're not majorly taught about disability in our school systems so you come across people who have no idea what disability looks like in real life and they sort of judge people for it and they don't know how to process their emotions about it so they project sort of negative lens onto uh, living a disability and, and living as a disabled person. And so you run into people who are just uncomfortable and they make it known. And then you run into people who are kind. It's sort of a mixed bag. Because I was going to ask about ADA, uh, you know, uh, that, that was so groundbreaking, but you're saying that that was just a start. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're, what, 31 years uh, since the ADA passed and I think that it groundbreaking, absolutely. But I, I think that the problem that we're having now is that we're seeing that it's not enforced in the way that it should be. You know, a lot of times people don't realize that when something is inaccessible, it's usually on the disabled person to do the work, 
mm. of complaining about it and then hoping that the person that you're complaining to is susceptible to wanting to change it and wanting to make it better. There's no real um, true punishment at this point for not having an accessible space. And I think that we need to, you know, as a society, really take a look at ourselves and ask ourselves why we aren't enforcing it because it is really important, you know. As a disabled person who lives in the world, I would love to live in a world that thinks of me, you know, that that sees my um, sees my experiences and wants to make sure that I can also navigate the world and live a life that is full of, you know, all things. But but a life that is absolutely more accessible. Now, now in your collection of essays, the pretty one, great title by the way, I love it. Thank I love you. that title. Uh, you you you're you're not only giving a, a voice to the disabled, to something people can relate to. You you you've explained it as saying um, this is. Uh, it also explores your relationship with your able-bodied identical twin. Um, yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So my twin sister Leah, she. Is my twin. <laughs> oh, you're t- okay. Yeah, and we um we grew up in the '90s, you know, trying to do what all kids do: find ourselves and figure out what it means to be a pair, but also what it means to be ourselves. And I think that I spent a really long time because she was closest in age to me, and like she was the person that I saw every day. Really envious of her because I thought that her being pretty or the pretty one like people would refer to her as her being the pretty one or her being quote-unquote normal was somehow an indication of my own lack of anything valuable (laughs) and I think it wasn't until I was an adult and I learned that there was room for both of us that I realized that I was jeopardizing I had spent years jeopardizing um, a potential relationship that would have been positive earlier had I not made myself somebody that she needed to um, defend herself against or somebody who needed to change themselves in order to be as good as her. And I think that, thank God, I figured it out and our relationship is in a much better place. I just think that when I was younger and I had all these like emotions and thoughts and hormones going through me, I was really convinced that her being beautiful in my eyes meant that I was ugly and everybody else's. And, and I, self-love is something that, you know, it's, it's, I feel like people are just now talking about it for everyone. I don't know why. I just Maybe it's because I'm on Twitter too much. But something that, that people are, are kind of saying, hey, you know, self-love and, and, and believing yourself to be beautiful, you know, despite any of society's message. The messaging is so awful to me, like advertising, yeah, TV. It really is. It, it just, and I, go ahead. I just, I love this stuff. Like, I'm a big pop culture person. I love film and TV and I love that space and I find that like I wish that it was better I wish that we weren't sending out some of the messages that I see this idea of us having perfect bodies and perfect everything like I think that I think we're now getting to a point where we're realizing that oh these imperfections are just as marketable and they are just as wonderful and beautiful and they matter just as much as you know somebody who's considered perfect because even at the end of the day nobody really looks like that that's no one no one no one no really one. looks not even the person in the po- on the poster 
or on the screen. Nobody actually looks like that day to day. They don't. I, these filters. What is going on, Kia? I mean, it's young women, yet girls are doing the filters and then being upset that they don't look like that. I mean, it has. It just seems like it gets worse every day. Yeah, there's just so much pressure to be something that doesn't actually exist, and it, it is heartbreaking because as someone who went through those feelings, I know how they can have a long-lasting effect, and I wish that we can get to a point in our society where we tell people, you don't have to look like that to be considered valuable. You know, we have to get to a place where we tell ourselves and each other that who we are as we are is enough. And you, you've written for every publication, but I was I was drawn to your writing in allure and glamour in style. Are, are these are you breaking ground with magazines? I mean, they have so much um, such a big draw and so much uh, power. I think it's what, what is it like to be able to, to write for them about about yourself and your things you've been through? I mean, honestly, it's so cheesy, but it's a dream come true. I grew up sort of idolizing these magazines and flipping through them and thinking like, I'll never be able to do this. Like, I'll never be in these pages, you know? And then I had this dream of just being like, oh, I, I'm not, I might not be beautiful enough to be in these pages, but I'll write for them. And so it's really just me actualizing those dreams and being able to just be honest about how I'm feeling and hoping that it helps somebody else feel less alone. And I hope that I'm breaking ground, but I guess, I never thought about it that way in terms of just keeping my head down and doing the work because to me it matters. And, and they're all things that I wanted to talk about. And I think my, my biggest goal is to make sure that I'm pleasing myself so that I can sustain uh, the amount of work that I'm doing and, and the different types of work that I do. And um, now you also have a, a picture book, Sam Super Seats, that will be coming out on, uh, next year. Tell us about the, yeah. the picture book. Oh, the picture book was so much fun to do. So it is a story about a young girl who is going back to school shopping with her best friend and her mom. And they go to my favorite place, the mall. I love the mall. I think that the mall is a magical place. It is. And so I wanted to show kids the importance of um, knowing who you are and also being able to know what you need. And, and for her, that means she needs to rest. And she learned the importance of of living in her body and making sure that kids know that it's okay to take a moment to rest. It's okay if your body needs a break, because I think we tell people all the time, like it's best to go, go, go. You know, there was a couple years of time where we were obsessed with the idea of the grind, mm -hmm. but I also think that it's important to teach people that it's also okay to take a rest. It's also okay to take a break and give your body a moment to just, you know, get back into itself and, let your bones rest. So yeah, that's a that's a book that I'm really proud of, and I can't wait for it to be out into the world. Now, wanted to ask, um, you know, you're, you have a great website, by the way. It's amazing. I Thank appreciate you. it. KiaBrown.com, everyone. It, it's it's got so many, just the great the writings all there. You know, every it just has so much information. I I got a lot out of it. And but the you talk the homepage says Kia Brown loves her herself, but that hadn't always been the case. Are you to a do you, are you to a place? Are you over sort of that 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 hurdle, or do you still struggle with self love, or how does that work when once you achieve it? I definitely still say that it's everyday work, and that I still struggle with it just in different ways. So 
when I initially began my journey, it was really just a struggle because I felt like my being disabled didn't make me worthy. But I think now I know that it does. And also that my sort of struggles come in different forms. Like sometimes I'll uh, get down on myself because I didn't get as much writing done as I, as I usually do. Or like I didn't hit my goal for the day. So I'll be like, oh, Kia, you could have done better. So it's really just me avoiding negative speak in general. Um, but I do feel like I'm, I'm past the point of struggling to uh, accept myself because I'm disabled and something. And, and then now I'm at a place where I'm just having the random um, everyday struggles that come with existing in a body in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that it's still everyday work and that I do um, try my best to remember that my learning to love myself is an action, not just a single thing that I did and now it's done. Because these sorts of things take a while and they take everyday work and it's worth work. It's worthy work. Well, I've, I've kept you late because I'm... I- just want to keep talking to you, but I will let you go. <laughs> Kia Brown, the essay collection, the book is The Pretty One. Check it out and look out next year for Sam's Super Seats, her debut picture book. Kia, congratulations on all your success. And I'm you're just starting out. You know, you're just um, I hope it continues. Thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you for all you do for all of us to educate and uh, help us all see the truth. I appreciate that. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Take care. I hope we can have you back. We're going to keep calling you. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great day, Kia. You too. Bye-bye. And thank you all for tuning in this morning for It's Too Early. We are a podcast, so if you came in a little late or you missed a show, I won't take it personally. Uh, You can go to Podbean, to Spotify, to um, Audible, and check out It's Too Early with Gwen Filosa. That's the name of the show. And uh, I don't just enjoy saying my name in third person. That's just the name, so you can type that in. We're going to push on uh, with a song, and I'll be back with your headlines and weather forecast. This is The Neighborhood Afraid. Stick around. Funny, all my friends always laugh.